How you guys doing today? All right, all right, me too. You know, uh, one of my hopes, one of my hopes is that we are a church that we dig like deep wells of living water and we let people drink freely, that we get to experience that living water. And uh, I know that part of my job is to have the shovel in my hand to do that and make that possible. Um, but I'm just gonna tell you that um, just being in worship this morning with you, I'm getting an opportunity to drink living water, amen? And I'm just as much a participant as you, and it just feels really good to be together today and to be doing what we're doing. Um, By the way, if you're here for the first time, my name is Brad. I also am one of the pastors here. And we have been in a series for the past several weeks talking about um, our soul. We've been talking about how to care for our soul. Um, Specifically, we've been talking about the uh, the anatomy, the makeup of our soul, how we're created. And, And last week, we got into some conversation around what the soul wants, that essentially our souls desire certain things. There's something that our soul is longing for, and it was will pursue those things no matter what we, we think or do. It will just long for these things to be resolved inside of us. And so those three things are really simple. The first one is that the soul wants to be whole. Um, the second thing is it wants to be full. And the third thing is that it wants to be free. And, and so it's pursuing all sorts of ways to experience wholeness, fullness, or freedom. And one of the things we talked about last week was this concept or this idea that oftentimes in our day and age, when we're not paying attention to our souls, when we're not actually giving attention to it, we actually find ourselves experiencing fragmentation instead of the wholeness that we were pursuing. Or instead of experiencing fullness, we end up chasing something and we feel empty, or we actually chase freedom and we end up feeling like we're in bondage. And so last week we were talking about this reality that we long for these things and we pursue various aspects of of satisfying those desires, but oftentimes we end up feeling like there's something broken inside of us. That's been part of this conversation. What's gone wrong with the human soul? Now, um, this week I want us to start moving in kind of the direction of, of thinking about how we resolve this. Where do we go from here? Now that we understand the anatomy of the soul, what steps do we take moving forward and how do we address this in our own lives as we begin to think about being whole, full, free individuals? And uh, as I was preparing this week, um, there was one person that just kept coming to mind. And, and truly, I just I, I kept working on stuff and writing and working on different aspects of this message, and I just kept thinking of this one person. And so eventually, I just opened up my Bible, and I started reading about this person, and it became really clear um, why he was on my mind. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament. It's actually uh, about a quarter of the way into it, maybe a little bit more, a third of the way into your New Te- into Old Testament. And uh, 1 Samuel, actually, there's a second Samuel, but just so you know, they're actually one book. It's just that uh, when the Hebrews wrote it, they couldn't get a scroll that big. And so they just broke it in two different parts, but it's one big idea. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to give you a sense of some things that are shifting when we start to read the book of, of, of Samuel. Um, there's actually a fundamental transition that's taking place in the way that the Hebrews were led or the way they were governing themselves beginning at this point. Up until this time in history, um, the Lord had appointed over the people of Israel judges or prophets who were sort of like the civic leaders of the day. They organized underneath these judges, um, and and essentially those civic leaders also led with a a sort of spiritual sensibility. You can kind of imagine these two things happening together. Well, um, that went on for several generations, and the people of Israel, they were comparing themselves to other nations, and they realized all of these other nations have kings, And so the people of Israel say to God, well, we want to be like the other countries, and we want a king too. And I won't get into all the details. There's a whole other message about that whole concept. But the reality is that God actually says to the people of Israel, I'm going to grant you what you wish. I'm going to give you a king. 
And so God goes to this individual named Samuel, hence the name of the book of Samuel, who was one of the prophets or judges during this time. And he tells Samuel, you are going to be the one who's going to identify this new king. You're going to run into him. You're going to see him. And you're going to know in your spirit, you will know that this is the individual that I have chosen to be the king over Israel. So that is 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's this sort of announcement. God's going to do this. He's going to do it through Samuel. He's going to see the person. And then chapter 8 just sort of closes. The scene ends. It kind of fades to black. Then you turn to chapter 9, and chapter 9 opens up with this. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So chapter 8 ends with this, there's going to be a new king, and you're going to be the one to find him. And then chapter 9 opens up with, there was this really tall, good-looking guy named Saul. And it doesn't take too much intelligence to realize the dots are about to connect, right? In fact, if you keep reading in chapter 9, the circumstances arrange themselves in such a way, coincidence, if you will, that Saul and Samuel have this random encounter. Samuel sees Saul, and immediately he's like, you can play linebacker for the chiefs, and I think you could be the king of Israel. So there's this, like, realization, you are our next king. And so he says this to him. He announces this to him. Like, this, this is the one. And so good-looking, taller than everybody else, Saul becomes the king. Now, I want to talk about Saul for just a minute because if you've been around the church for a while, Saul gets a bit of a bad rap. So if you're new to church and you're new to the Bible, you don't know this, um, but a lot of people talk trash about Saul all the time. And uh, actually, Saul, when we first meet him, he's actually a really likable individual. He's actually a great individual. Um, there's things we see in Saul's early story that are really, really things we celebrate, things we look for in leaders. In fact, um, a couple of them I'll point out to you. There's this moment right at the very beginning of this when he questions Samuel, when Samuel says, you're the one, he actually says, why me? Like that's, that sort of humility that seems like it's always a part of those individuals God chooses to lead. It's on this guy, Saul. He literally says, who am I to do this sort of thing? And Samuel's like, well, you're the tall, good-looking guy. That's who you are, right? And then after this conversation, he goes to his uncle. His uncle gets wind, uh, knows that he's been talking to Samuel the prophet, and his uncle says to him, what, um, what, what did he tell you? What were you guys talking about? What, is there some, some news that we need to know? And, and Saul, you know, he doesn't put this on Instagram. He doesn't tweet it. He doesn't even tell his uncle what, Sam, what Samuel has told him. It's just sort of this private thing. There's this humility. You know, so many people in this moment would have been saying, hey, check it out. Listen to what I heard. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm headed for the big time. And not Saul. He just sort of keeps this thing on the down low. And then um, there's this other moment as it begins to go public that there's a group of individuals who actually s disagree with Samuel. And they're like, we don't think he's the one. We don't care that he's tall, dark, and handsome. We, that, doesn't, that doesn't matter to us. We don't, we don't care that Samuel's the one that chose him. We don't think he's the one. And they begin to vocally criticize the one that God's chosen. And you know what Saul does? Nothing. He just, Saul just moves forward believing that whatever God has for him, he's told him, and he's going to listen to God and not them. And so he doesn't argue with him, he doesn't debate, he doesn't defend, he just simply moves forward in the calling that God has on his life. So we're seeing these characteristics. Then there's another incident. This is one more that I'll tell you about. Um, there's this, as, as, he's, as he's sort of rising to this public moment, there's a situation where there's a group of people in Israel that are experiencing an injustice. They're being oppressed. 
And Saul has this encounter with him, and he's made known of this, uh, this injustice that takes place. And this is what we read about. He's sort of traveling in this moment in, in chapter 11, verse 5. And it says this, Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said, this oppression that they were under. And when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. So I just want you to see that Saul is the kind of individual that is humble. He doesn't defend himself. He's moving in confidence, and he's the kind of guy on whom the Spirit of God falls. The Spirit of God is on Saul, and he burns with anger. And not just, you know, some random reason. He burns because there's a deep sense of justice. So he actually responds to this injustice. He goes out and defends these people. There's this tremendous victory. The people rally behind him. And at this point in the story, the trajectory of Saul's life, it already started pretty good, but now it is like up and to the right. His life looks amazing. He's a good guy trustworthy, has integrity. And then things begin to turn. And this is sort of interesting. In fact, the more you begin to read his life, the more it becomes a study in how not to lead yourself. Saul's story actually takes a turn. And as you begin seeing this, it's almost like someone starts pulling a thread and then they begin to pull that thread and everything just comes apart at the seams. This entire thing comes unraveled all around him. In fact, Um, he becomes horribly insecure as he moves through his life. He gets jealous of other individuals. He acts arrogantly and belligerently. He becomes stubborn. He ignores the counsel of other people. When he makes a decision and it goes poorly, he blames shifts other people that are around him. He can't admit his own mistakes. He betrays people that are close to him. Over and over, he abdicates his rule when he should be stepping out. And he does all of these things. And his life eventually ends in a horrible tragedy. And you just sort of look at the whole thing and you say, how does this happen? How does somebody who started out with this trajectory end up in a place like this? How does that take place? And and you can't read this without asking some of those kinds of questions. In fact, let me just say this. Um, Thinking people look at situations like this and they ask questions like, how did that happen? How does a story go like this? Because the inconsistencies between what he believed and who he became are so significant, it begs us to say, how does something like this take place? How did it happen? And it's overly simplistic for us to look at this and say, well, you know what, I guess Saul just had some character flaws and we didn't really know those things. We actually don't have any evidence of that. So so what happened to Saul? How do you explain a story where God's guy, the guy God chose, taller, bigger, better looking, has the favor of the people, everybody loves him. How do you explain it when a guy like that self-destructs? And and here's why this is important for us to answer. He's not the only one, is he? I mean, his story might be unique because of his name and his specific circumstances, but generally speaking, this story is not that unique. Over and over again, everyday, regular people who start out up here wind up down here. There are good men and there are good women who make decisions and choices and they take paths or courses of direction in their lives and then they sit in a moment and they go, how in the world did I let myself get here? How did I make those choices? How did I let these things happen? How did my life go from that point to this point? We ask this. And I I think Saul's story actually 
relates to this series that we're talking about in a very significant way because Saul's life, if you look at his life closely, if you come at it with this lens, what you understand is that this story is the story of a soul that is unkept and uncared for. Saul's life is an expose on what happens when people stop caring for their souls. So, so, so what do you do? What do you do if you're Saul and you wake up to this? What do you do if you're you? What do you do if you're me? And you go, wait a second. I'm looking at this story and I'm realizing my story's starting to parallel this. Um, you don't obviously want to follow this to its end. It doesn't end well. So you say, okay, what am I going to do? Or maybe over the last couple of weeks as we've been talking about the soul and the anatomy of the soul, there's been a part of you that has said, you know what? This is, you were actually describing some of the conditions of where I'm at. How do we turn this thing around? What do we do when we realize this is headed in a particular direction? And so I want to talk today about the renewing of our soul. How do we renew it? How do we wake up from this moment? How do, we, how do we repair what's already happened to it? And how do we return to this place that God intended our soul to be? And, and so I'm going to give you three things this morning as it relates to this. And uh, next week I'm going to give you probably three or four more, but I figured all you could handle today was three, right? It's, I can only handle three things at a time, so I'm just going to give you three. And we're actually going to start really big, and we're going to start narrowing ourselves down at the end of today and then moving into next week. But I want to give you these three things. And the first one, you're going to go, well, yeah, of course. But let me just say it and then talk about it. That the soul is renewed through care. Your soul is renewed through care. And I know you go, yeah, this is called soul care. Of course it is, right? But let me explain something about this. Um, Years ago, uh, I came home one evening, we were doing some projects around the house, and we're getting ready for dinner, and I had felt this pain uh, in my side for most of the afternoon, didn't know what it was, I thought maybe it was something I ate, or maybe I pulled a muscle, something like that, and uh, we kind of went into the evening, I was sitting at the dinner table, still kind of hurt, thought, I don't know what that is, um, I had a project going, I didn't do it, I just kind of laid around the house trying to make it feel better, eventually I went to bed, woke up several times in the night, and this thing was just sort of aching inside of me, and I was like, there, there's something like wrong. Like I really ate something wrong this time. You know, that's usually what it is for me. And, uh, and so then the next morning I woke up, the pain's still there. Start moving through my day pretty bad. And so finally I just thought, you know what, I got to go to the doctor. And so I went to the doctor and almost immediately he said, you need to go get some tests done. I go to get these tests done and this is a bad sign. When they do all the scan stuff, you know, they put you in the machine, the whole thing. When they pull you out and they tell you, um, can you just wait here and not leave? <laughs> That's not a good thing. Like, I've learned this enough in life, right? And so the, the, tech, the tech person says, uh, yeah, can you just, I think you need to wait here, you know? And I'm like, well, what'd you see? And they're like, we can't tell you, but your doctor can, so wait right here. Literally, there's a phone right there by this desk. The phone rings. It's my doctor. The doctor said, get to the hospital now. My appendix was bursting. And so I go to the hospital. It was actually really funny because I showed up. I waited in like the lobby like I was checking into a hotel. And eventually I was like, can you just tell me what floor I'm on? And so I went up to the nurse's counter, walked up, said I need to check in for like a surgery thing. And she's like so confused by me walking in. She's like, you shouldn't be standing like this. And, uh, and, and it turns out they did an emergency appendectomy, which back then, I don't know if it's different today, that just was like an opportunity for the surgeon to use his chainsaw. Like, he's just like, I'm just going in from the front, you know, and just, just tore me open. And, uh, and so in the recovery, they said, you know, we went through your abdomen. There's quite a bit of damage. This is going to take a while. You know, you've got some limitations on what you can lift and do and all these other things. You need to take care of yourself. Here's some pills. Go home. Do your thing, right? So I go home, and here's the problem with stuff like emergency appendectomies. You don't plan these things. 
Right? That's just the way it is. You don't get to go, hey, I'd like to have an emergency appendectomy in February. No, that doesn't happen. And so I was busy. I had things going. In fact, when I was laying in bed, I remember this so, so distinctly. I'm laying in bed. I'm looking out our bedroom window at our back patio across the yard, our little L-shaped house. And I had started a project of replacing one of the beams on the patio. And so I'm literally looking at this project while I'm laying in bed, somewhat drugged by these pills that they gave me. And it's driving me crazy that the project isn't being finished. So I'm, I'm reading some books, you know, and kind of hanging out and just being irritated by this thing. Not only that, my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, Maddie, she was having a birthday party in a couple of days, and it was supposed to be on that back patio. And so, um, you know what I did? I waited till Sherry was gone, <laughs> right? And I got the ladder, and I got the hammer, and I got the nails, and I shuffled out there. And then I got this beam, and I put it on my shoulder, and I start climbing the ladder, and as I'm climbing up this ladder, I suddenly feel what I would liken to a very hot knife being stabbed into my stomach. Just this massive burn, you know, just like so horrible. And so, you know, I'm in the middle of this, like now I'm really dead, you know. She's going to be mad at me for doing this. And I, I thought the least I can do is finish the job, right? <laughs> and so I finish, you know, putting the beam up there. And, uh, and then I get down, I'm just expecting my stitches to be all open. And the stitches on the outside were fine, um, it was what was on the inside that had torn apart. And so there was this massive thing. And I, and I remember Sherry, come home, you know, she came home and she's like, what? You know, this is what all wives do. What were you thinking? Like, <laughs> what part of take care of yourself includes putting a beam on your shoulder and climbing a ladder when you have a gash in your abdomen? Like, there's no part of taking care of yourself that, that means this, right? If this has ever happened to you, which strangely enough, I've had a couple of people come and say, yeah, we get along fine. Which is like, apparently this is a thing. We all do this sort of thing. But when someone says, take care of yourself, it means something, right? Take care of yourself. Because the word care is about how we approach something. The word care is about an attitude that we have. It's a posture that we take as we ap approach a particular thing or person or situation. Take care means there's an awareness that your eyes are open and that you are sensing what's going on in this scenario. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, no Hebrew or Greek needed here, um, the noun for care is this, the provision of what is necessary for health, welfare, maintenance, and protection of someone or something. That's what care is. The verb is to feel concern or interest or attach importance to something. So in a relationship, if you say, I want to be caring towards this person, what does that mean? Well, it means my orientation around that person is now I'm looking out for your needs. I'm looking out for what you need. I'm thinking about how you can be whole. I'm thinking about how I can serve you. If I'm going to be caring towards you, I am now sensitive to who you are. If I, I hand you something and I say, be careful with this, and it's an object, you understand that there's a fragility to it. And so you treat that thing differently. Maybe you treat it like an heirloom. Maybe you, you hold it carefully in your hands because I say, hey, be careful. There's something breakable here. When we talk about caring for our soul, we have this same posture. We're now approaching with this understanding that the soul requires us to know what does it need? Are we, are we asking questions about its health? Are we caring for it as if it's fragile? Um, by the way, Saul, he was like a bull in a china shop. 
He had this tendency just to plow forward and not think about what he was doing or the impact it would have on his soul. In fact, there's, a, there's one particular moment in his life where he's waiting for Samuel to show up at the, at the battlefield. They're getting ready to go into battle. And, uh, and Samuel says, hey, I'm going to come. We're going to worship God together and make some sacrifices, a job that only he was supposed to do. And he says, I'm going to come in seven days. Wait seven days. I'll be there, and then you can go do your thing, Saul. And so Saul's waiting with the men. Meanwhile, the Philistines, they're kind of rallying around to come fight them. The men of Israel are scampering away. They're getting afraid. And the days are ticking by. One, two, three, four. Finally, they get to the seventh day. And at the end of the seventh day, Samuel hasn't come. So they wake up on the eighth day. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 13. Saul says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offerings. And then as it would go so many times in most of our lives, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. This is like when the kids meet you at the door and they say, hi mom, hi dad. And you know something's up. Right? He shows up. Hey Samuel, how's it going? <laughs> what are you doing here? You're late. And Samuel says in verse 11, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul replied, Well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. You know what happens when the Philistines assemble at Michmash, right? As a joke. You guys are like, no, we don't actually know what happens. I don't, it, just, it just sounds funny to me. Michmash. Who names a city? Michmash. Uh, he said, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor, and so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And then verse 13, Samuel said, you have done a foolish thing. See, there's a way to live, there's a way to move through life that is intentional and aware. And it is rarely congruent with the sort of fast-paced, get-it-now, drive-through microwave culture that we live in today. And as it relates to the soul, you cannot force the soul into renewal. You can't simply just snap your fingers, hey, let's go to the soul gym tomorrow and everything is going to be just fine. Restoring your soul means you begin to understand what its needs are and you care for it. You don't control it, manipulate it, or force it. You care for it. You hold it carefully before you. And that takes time. That's why there's this one word you see over and over that's connected to the word soul. Uh, Psalm 62 is another example. We've seen it in other psalms in this series. But Psalm 62, 1 says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. And over and over again, you see this word rest being associated with the soul. The soul needs rest. It needs care. It, it means we have to take time, and it's going to require patience. It means we observe and we consider our soul and its condition. That's what it means to care. It means we think, are there some things that I need to change? Do I have some habits or behaviors? Do I have some patterns that need to shift or change in order for my soul to be healthy? Maybe I should add some things. Maybe I should take some things away. So, so that's where renewal begins. Renewal begins by approaching our soul with care. And then because the next one really flows out of that, um, I want to make sure you understand that from this posture of care, we then begin to understand the need to protect our soul. And so renewal happens through protection. The soul is renewed through protection. Once you begin to understand the fragility of it, the frailty of your soul, you realize, I have to care for this thing. Why? Because your soul gets hurt. Is it possible to wound your soul? Absolutely. There are things that happen. There are circumstances. There are situations. There are decisions that we make 
There are decisions that other people make, and there are things that happen that wound our soul. And so if we want to experience renewal in our souls, if we want to backtrack and get things back to where they used to be, we start by approaching it with care, and then we have to guard it. Um, one of my daughters, my, my middle daughter, Maddie, uh, when she was in high school, um, I don't know what happened. I think she was like her junior year. Um, something just like, there was like a magnet between her head and hard objects, and I don't know what was going on, but literally there was about a two or three month stretch where Maddie, um, she was like, she had like a concussion like every week or every other week. And, and it got to this point, it started to get kind of scary. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, at some point I'm like, are you like surfing on the back of chairs? Like, what are you doing? And uh, I, I wanted her to wear a helmet to school. She didn't think that was funny at all. Um, but we ended up moving into like this full protection mode of Maddie's brain. Because we knew she can't keep sustaining these. And there was a certain amount of care that had to be given to get her back just to square one. And so when she walked into a room, if the lights were too high, we turned all the lights down. Though This went on for a couple of weeks. If there were noises, we just turned everything, we turned the volume down. All the stimulus, all the things that could potentially harm her, her activities, they had to change and shift just so we could bring healing and wholeness back to her brain. The soul is exactly the same way. The nature and the makeup of our soul is such that if it is wounded and needs restoration, we have to protect it against the stimulation that would continue to cause damage. Now, the natural question for us then to say is, okay, so protection, protection from what? Protection from who? And again, I just want to look at Saul because a little further down in Saul's story, there's a situation that sheds light on how our souls get damaged and begin to disintegrate. Um, Samuel gives him really specific directions. They're going into battle and he says, there's things that you need to do and there's something you need to not do. And the thing you need to not do is not take the plunder of the village that you're going to go up against. These people that you're going to fight, don't take their stuff. And Saul um, lets the men take their stuff. And so Samuel sees this, he hears about it, and so he goes to Saul and he confronts him. And here's what we read. In verse 19 of, of chapter 15, he says, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And then Saul responds, he says, But I did obey the Lord, right? I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag their king. Yeah, the soldiers took sheep, and you can kind of hear this, right? The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of which was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. So Saul says, listen, there was a job to do, and I did the job. God asked me to do this. I did it. Yeah, there were some nuances of things I missed in there, but why does that stuff matter? I did the big thing. Why does the little stuff matter? In fact, he even says, we, yeah, we took some stuff, but we're going to offer that back to God. I did obey. We, we're even going to offer that to God. And then Samuel says something so powerful, and this just lingers with me. He looks at him and says, does the Lord delight, verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? And then there's this iconic sentence. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Like what God wants is your obedience, not a sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And let me just explain why he says this. The sacrificial system was intended to create clear communication or a clean relationship between God and humanity. There was this dirtied relationship, if you will. And so the reason for the sacrificial system was to clean up the relationship, to clean up the lines of communication. By the way, someday I'm going to do a series on Leviticus, uh, and we'll have all sorts of fun. I promise you that. It's in your future. 
guys just moaned. <laughs> you moaned. But the point, the point of the sacrificial system is, is to clean up the communication because if you sinned, you felt this dirtiness between you and God, and so you sacrifice in order to feel clean between you and God. So even the fact that Saul goes, no, 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 we took this stuff, but we were going to make a sacrifice. It's almost like a confession on his own party saying, I understand. Like the reason he's doing this is because he knew I'm going to have to somehow please God after this. I've made God angry. And so now I got to jump through some hoops and try to make this angry God happy. And, And what Samuel is saying is you don't get it, Saul. He would rather have you obey in the first place than have to cover your brokenness and the messiness of the friendship, the relationship. So, so besides the obvious, why would Samuel say this? He says this because sin has a disintegrating effect on our souls. It disintegrates us. In fact, when you read the Bible, you start to notice this language that's applied to sin, that it lures us, that it enslaves us, that it destroys us. Um, sin, as you read the Bible, here's what's interesting. It's always present. It's very familiar, but it is never presented as normal. It's always alien. It's always, it doesn't belong. It's always a departure from what God wants. In fact, in the Exodus, um, sin is equated with, with disorder, with disobedience, with fragmentation. It's what disturbs the peace and the wholeness that God has for us. And it functions like a parasite. And I, and I say this because the only way for it to survive is for it to feed on and destroy what is good. Like Neil Plantinga, he says this. He says, sin is both fatal and fertile. It destroys us, but then it just keeps multiplying. It keeps growing. It grows like a parasite. So, so this, is, this is why we read things like this in Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart, right? Protect your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left, but keep your foot from evil. What the writer of Proverbs is presenting is an attentiveness that's being described in these words. Pay attention. Not religiously, not because God's going to be angry, not out of duty, but for the sake of your soul. Pay attention to these things. Your obedience matters because your disobedience disintegrates your soul. So guard your heart. Protect your soul. Think about the things you think about. Pay attention to the words that you speak. Pay attention. Take note of what you look at, what you hear, what you listen to, all the things you do, even the places you go. What the writer of Proverbs is presenting is that all of this stuff can have an effect on your soul. Which is why restoring your soul means you got to take some protective measures. Your, your soul, my soul, it doesn't need another concussion. Amen? Now, now before I move um, to the final one, I just need to address a, a pet peeve that I have that flows out of what I just said. One of my personal pet peeves, this is a side note, by the way, is when people call me um, religious. Uh, I got friends that they don't know Jesus yet, and so oftentimes they'll introduce me to other friends of theirs and go, hey, this is my friend Brad, he's really religious. And I'm always like, ooh, like fingernails on the chalkboard, right? There's just this thing. And, and, and here's why, because what I just said, some of you might have heard what I just said about, the, you know, about the, the, the watch what you look at and hear and all these different things, and you go, that just sounds like religion. It sounds like rules and do's and don'ts and all these different things. Um, that, that sounds like religion, and here's why this is a pet peeve. 
Because religion is any system that is created by man through which we attempt to please God. That's religion. Religion is about obeying in order to somehow make God happy with us. That's what it is. But let me just say this very clearly to all of you in the room. That is not what Jesus came to establish. Jesus, Jesus wasn't looking and saying, you know what the world needs is another world religion to fight about and argue about. Jesus actually eradicates religion and gives us something entirely new. In fact, the gospel is the opposite of religion. Um, Tim Keller says this. I, I love this quote. Tim Keller says, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Right? It's a complete undoing of our entire understanding. And so if you hear me saying something that sounds religious when I say, protect yourself from sin, it isn't. Because God is far more concerned about us wrecking our souls than he is about us ruining his reputation. Are you with me in this? Let me say that again. That God is far more concerned about us wrecking our souls than about us somehow ruining his reputation. He cares about us. Which is why at the heart of the gospel is this cross that speaks volumes of his tremendous, overwhelming love for us. When we look at the cross and we see God's love, it opens our heart, it opens our eyes to his grace and his mercy, and there's something that happens inside of us. We realize we can trust this God. This is not a fickle God. This is a God who establishes himself as trustworthy, which really leads, and I need to close, it leads to this last one, that the soul is renewed by a centering in Christ, centering in the gospel. And by the way, here's a question I'm asking myself right now. Brad, where is your center? When I say that, here's what I mean. Where am I going to find my value? Or what voices am I going to listen to? Or who is going to determine what is true or good or right in my life? That's what I'm asking myself right now. Is Brad Williams at the center? Are your voices and opinions at the center? Or is Christ at the center? The soul is renewed when we put Christ at the center of our soul. Um, one of Saul's deficiencies is that he put the words and opinions of others before God's. This summer, um, two of my friends, they had a bit of a disagreement. And the disagreement arose because the one, one friend told the other friend something that was true that they needed to hear but the other friend didn't really want to hear it. <laughs> Does that ever happen to anybody? Right? And, uh, and it didn't go well, and, and he disagreed with him, and they went back and forth, and I was in the middle. I just wanted to put him in a cage and let him fight, and, uh, and we, we couldn't find one big enough. Um, but this one day, the guy that received the word that didn't like it, he called me, and he goes, I need to apologize to our other friend. And I said, okay, what changed? And he said, well, it just dawned on me. For the last 15 or 20 years, that man has always had my back. He said, that man has never wanted anything but flourishing for me. He's always supported my family. He's always been there for me. He has always been my fan. And he said, the audacity that I have to question his loyalty and whether I could trust him just because I didn't like it is beyond me. As he told me that and shared that with me, I realized that same thing is true in our relationship with God. Do we trust God enough that we will let him tell us stuff we don't like? 
Do we trust God enough to say, God, you know what? I want your opinion on this. And then when he says something we don't like, do we go, that makes me uncomfortable, but I'm going to trust you. Do we trust God with that kind of trust? See, I, I think for a lot of us in our modern faith, we sort of have this approach that we look at God and it's as if he sort of hangs some truths out in the universe. There are these platitudes or principles and occasionally when we are the center of our lives, we walk along and say, you know what, I think I'm going to grab this one or I think I'll take this one and, and use this for, for this season in my life. But we're never actually saying, no, God, you're going to be at the center and all of your truth and all of your principles will govern me whether I like it or not. Our soul is healed when we say, Christ, I want you at the center of all of it, the center of my being. I am not in the middle. You are in the middle, and you will define what is true. When we do that, there's something that happens to us. It is the beginning of radical transformation. I'll just close with this. There's this one example. Um, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17. He's speaking to the Greeks and he quotes a Greek poet, and he's speaking of Jesus, and he says, it is in him, in Christ, that we live and we move and we have our being. When he says this, he's not simply describing a scientific reality. Here are the laws of the universe that Jesus holds all things together, that, that he's the God of the universe. It's not simply that. He's actually describing an abnormal way of living that takes place when you begin to see Jesus for who he is. When you begin to allow him to be the center of your life. Then you begin to move through your days with an awareness that it is in him that you are living and moving and having your being. He's describing a different way of living. A way that happens when our souls become what our souls were intended to be. Amen? Would you stand with me? Would you pray with me? And um, as we just take a moment to pause, I want to ask that you consider three questions. Just real quickly, just close your eyes, give a little self-assessment for a minute. And the first question is this. <clears throat> if you were to put a scale of one to five, five being good and one being pretty bad, how well are you caring for your soul? I think it's good just to check in and say, okay, yep, this is, I'm a two, I'm a three, I'm, you know. And the second thing is this. Is there anything right now in this moment that you know it's destroying your soul? It's wounding you? It's harming you? Is there anything that even as you hear this today, you just go, you know what, I gotta make a change. I gotta make a shift. I gotta change some patterns or habits or behaviors? Is there something that needs to change? And the third question is this. Is Jesus really at the center? Is Jesus really at the center? Is it time just to say, you know what, Lord, I've been sort of picking and choosing what I like and don't like, but I really want you to be at the center of my soul. Lord, heal us and open our eyes to see your goodness, that you want the absolute best for us. You want our lives to flourish, 
You want there to be joy and peace and wholeness. And I truly believe it's through the care of our soul that we experience what you've promised us. So help us in this journey, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before we sing this song, I was listening to it uh, back this summer. I was driving the car and I heard this song and literally I just said, Lord, when I sing this song, it's like I'm praying you into this position in my heart. And I love that these guys chose for us to close with this today. So would you just join me right now and let's sing Jesus into the center of our hearts. Amen? Let's do this together.